0: This is the Nordic Asia podcast.
1: Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Satoko Naito, and I am a docent at the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. And it's my pleasure to today welcome Stephen Ranger. Who is a research associate at the European Center for International Political Economy? He is also a PhD candidate here at the Center for East Asian Studies. And his research interests include British foreign policy in East Asia, Japan's rise in the early 20th century, and film industries in the region. He's joined us today to talk about his recent publications on the early Japanese film industry. So thanks so much for your time, Stephen, and welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you very much for having me on, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: Before we discuss your papers, which were really insightful, your current research focuses on Japan and East Asia broadly. Did you start with interest in this region, or, and is this an extension of your previous research?
0: Um, yeah, to a certain extent. It's been a sort of progress since I started out with Korean studies originally at university. And then I went to Korea, pursued my master's in international relations and and then working in think tanks and so on. The focus was mainly on US-China relations and North Korea, very contemporary issues. And I found that was kind of sort of limitation to how you can approach those topic contemporary issues. So I was looking for different approaches and the cultural industry seemed very interesting. I was able to work together with some colleagues on a research project that we've just wrapped up now in which we looked at Korea's cultural industries and Hallyu and so on the Korean way. And for me, I was able to tie this in with my other interest in the postdoctoral studies that I'm doing at the moment, which is on more historical issues and about Britain's role in Asia during the period of Japan's rise to the early 20th century. And then sort of marrying these two what seem opposite topics together, It was quite fascinating looking at, say, the film industries in the early period when some European countries like Britain and so on were more sort of dominant in in the market before Hollywood came about, before even Hollywood set up. So it was an interesting period to look at this transition between the European film industries in Asia and then when Hollywood came in and sort of understand the decline of these industries. So I looked at that in the first paper I did. And then the second paper, I looked more at Hollywood's role. It's like almost the part two of the stories of how Hollywood began to experience its own difficulties as well. And again, I look at the sort of political story in the background as overlap with that and see what influences came from that.
1: Okay, great. It's always really fascinating to me to hear the inspiring, to hear the range of expertise that scholars have, and how your research evolves over time. Um, Thanks for sharing that with us. Well, you already mentioned your two articles, and I'd like to look at the specifics that you discuss. But first, maybe, if you can, you touched upon this already, but if you can first introduce us to the state of the Japanese film industry in the early 20th century.
0: Yeah, so at the early 20th century, as many countries at the time were just beginning to experience the growth of their industries in film as soon as the development of the technology to make films. And in this respect, a lot of European countries were kind of importing or exporting films to Japan. Britain was one of the leading countries. And in fact, Britain at the time had um, London, which was the sort of hub of distribution for films that were made at the time. But Japan was caught up very quickly in terms of forming its own industries. And I think this is a very interesting example of how Britain went into decline with its own film industry, whereas Japan was rising and, in fact, went on to compete equally with Hollywood by the 1920s. So Japan was able to sort of very much vertically integrate its film industry, similar to the way that Hollywood emerged as well, so it learned very much lessons from the US that was going very successful, but then early lessons as well from Britain about filmmaking techniques and so on. So adapting the perfect lessons from each country, and it came successful. But so that's how the background story of, of the paper that I worked on. But I, I looked at more the, the competitive aspect of Britain at the time.
1: Okay, so the competitive aspect of Britain, well, you mentioned that London is a hub because not only are they producing films in Britain, but they're also distributing films. So you mean from other European countries, is that right?
0: Yeah, European countries and also the US was distributing their films through London at the time. But then once Hollywood established its own studio system, Distribution then went directly through the Hollywood studios. They opened up their own distribution companies in Japan, which bypassed London. So London's role became, by the end of the 1910s, early 1920s, London's role was non-existent at that time as a distribution hub. And and I explored many of the other issues about how European film industries became more inward looking and less concerned about larger markets, more nationalistic almost in the contents of their films and so on.
1: Can you tell us specifically when you say nationalistic? So, w- which countries exactly are you talking about here?
0: So, we're looking at France, particularly Germany, not so uh, to an extent that would emerge later. In fact, Germany was quite successful in competing with Hollywood for international type films, as you mm. might call them. Britain also began to look at more popular topics that would be for British audiences rather than international audiences, so, dramas that would appeal to sort of middle-class audiences in Britain, rather than thinking about global markets and so on. So, so, And a lot of this is partially outcome of the First World War. And there was a lot of still antagonism between different countries and a lot of boycotts and bans were put in place as well. So it's a sort of manifestation of the politics in Europe. But yeah, it's a sort of interesting story of the decline of Europe's film industry. Yeah,
1: definitely. So... Of course, then in this situation, the US, the Hollywood, is not included in your discussion. Of course, at this point,
0: at this point, not not direct study. I looked at more of Britain and it, its experience, but Hollywood's always the sort of big player in the room. I guess you know you you compare it because uh, eventually Hollywood would become then the more dominant in the market in the Japanese market by the 1920s. But even Hollywood would become second to domestic films made in Japan, which is a story that's unique in itself. Whereas like in Europe, France, for instance, or Britain would be dominated by Hollywood films in their own markets. Japan was actually able to compete successfully um, against Hollywood. So that's an interesting story as well.
1: Yeah, that definitely is. You, You mentioned in one of your papers that by the early 1920s, the Japanese preferred American films over those of, you say, Germany, Italy, Britain. So obviously by this point, it was distinguishable enough, the American films from the European films. Can you explain a little more about that phenomenon?
0: Yeah, so I think Hollywood's success at the time was very much to do with its approach to filmmaking in terms of the big stars that they used, the the cutting-edge technology and special effects and so on universal stories that were very appealing and i think i used the quote in the paper about from some hollywood executive who complained about european filmmakers were not really understanding international audiences with in terms of even genre of, of the films they were making and there were also other factors in the way that hollywood was more geared up for very much direct distribution they have very effective distribution channels that worked well but again as i was saying the interesting story from that as well as Although Japanese audiences enjoyed uh, Hollywood films, and this was mainly, I guess you would say, an uh, urban phenomenon anyway. The, and, and I think it also reflects as well the growing middle class in Japan at the time as well, where more urbanized middle class are growing. And they would have time and money to go to movie theaters, watch sort of Hollywood films like this. And, but at the same time, as I mentioned, the Japanese film industry was catching up very quickly, becoming equally as competitive. So that's a very interesting tale there.
1: Yeah, so so the domestic film market, Japanese films, how did that fare in the domestic market?
0: Well, I mean, obviously, I'll focus more on the the international companies that were there. But it, yeah, there was key filmmakers at the time who were very effective in working in this sort of horizontal structure of vertically integrated, sorry, vertically integrated structure of um, film companies. And they were able to produce films that were quite appealing in terms of topic. They also brought in a star system as well, similar to Hollywood, which was effective. But as well, there's very little to know about the films that were made during this period, partly because of the Great Kanto Earthquake in 1923 it led to a lot of fires, and the fires destroyed a lot of the copies of these films that were made during this period, and there were no other copies. it was single copies of print of these films. So a lot of the films that we were of this period that are very creepy critical period a lot of the original stocks of the films are missing so it's very much anecdotal evidence of on you know what was happening in terms of the content of the film but from from what we know we can deduce from that so yeah i think this is very much the hollywood system where a studio dominates all aspects of the industry from planning producing the film and then distributing the film to the theaters and even owning the theaters as well so you have one company that the all operations in this in filmmaking industry is, is run by one company. And this means that they can plan out more accurately where the film's going to go at the end point and the beginning point. They, they can effectively plan out their operation. I mean there are controversial aspects about that today. I mean, the Hollywood system, as, as you might describe it, is it's been throughout the ages controversial, but it has been effective in Japan. I mean, Japan still has this kind of vertically integrated system today. It's changed. Some of it still exists from what emerged during the 1910s and 20s.
1: Your focus on your paper on Hollywood in the Japan's film industry talks about the film ban of 1937, which lasted just about a year. And this kind of of censorship, of course, is a huge issue, topic of this this period, interwar, postwar, especially in Japan you talk about the strength of the home ministry and its role in censorship. Can you speak widely about censorship during this time, both with Hollywood films and maybe also with the domestic films as well?
0: Yeah, so the focus of my paper was looking at the the political aspects and how it related to this import ban. And One of the curious aspects I found about the import ban, as you mentioned, was its short Live nature it seemed very odd to me that at a time when the political climate between the US and Japan at the time was really antagonistic and there was great disputes over what was happening in China the film ban you would think would come in and would stay in but actually it was lifted and there were negotiations over it so I was quite interested to look at what was going on behind the scenes. And it seemed to me it was more related to financial aspects and issues related around the transfer of of funds. But there's also the issue of censorship and trying to understand how censorship works during this period. And one interesting aspect as well is that the censorship wasn't as strict as I might have imagined at Mm -hmm. the time. As Japan was going becoming more involved in its war in, in China and you have stronger leaning towards more far-right fascist elements. You'd expect there to be a complete ban on outside films and so on. But actually, they didn't come till the war broke out with the US and Hollywood films were still being brought in. And in fact, they weren't being censored as in complete bans. A lot of Hollywood films passed through with just minor editing. And editing at the time was mainly related to Issues that were political in nature. So if there was any reference about war in China or contemporary political issues, that would be cut out. Or in some cases, they would return it and the the filmmakers might remake the film, slightly changing some scenes to help with the continuity of what was made. But it is interesting to see that actually the censorship wasn't as strict as I thought it would be. And in some ways, it's been pointed out in some studies about how some of the censorship was actually used to make money. So they would reject films. But every time you put a film in for censorship, you had to pay for it. So every time it was rejected, you had to pay again and then pay again. It was kind of like a money making scheme, almost quite interesting. So the, the film ban that did come in in 1937 was very much about transfer of foreign currency reserves that hollywood filmmakers were making where their profits went how they took it out of the country and so on so that was possible for negotiation to find an agreement on that whereas if it was more political in nature and very much about keeping hollywood out of japan i would have imagined that that would have been impossible and that's the analysis that i i use but yeah there's a very complicated story about censorship and also even the parties that are involved so you mentioned home ministry home ministry was central but the army and the navy could also petition for films to be censored or changed and even later on as japan became a member of the Axis alliance with germany and italy then you had germany and italy petitioning japan to ban or censor certain films that they weren't happy with and that was part of this effort of some sort of cultural interaction between the Axis powers which was quite an interesting story on its own about how germany italy and and japan tried to present this idea of cultural exchange between them even though their policies were very much superior cultures and it seems very odd that you would have this kind of cultural exchanges between say nazi germany fascist italy and japan at the time so and it's interesting the kind of requests that they made for films that should be banned in each other's country so yeah that's another story
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating. So am I right to assume that German and Italian films were never banned in Japan?
0: Uh, no, no, they were they were allowed in. That that was fine. I mean, in fact, they tried to encourage more of those films and, and even uh, Japanese filmmakers went to the Venice Film Festival that just started up in the late nineteen thirties. Um, and you had Japanese filmmakers participating in the Venice Film Festival, which was quite interesting as well, part of this whole cultural cooperation that was going on.
1: Okay, so we've already mentioned the 1937 Hollywood film ban in Japan, but I understand that there was a 1924 Hollywood boycott, and then finally a 1939 film law. Can you briefly outline the differences and how there's so many different levels of banning and boycott at this period?
0: Yeah, so I think this really reflects the different actors who were involved at the time. The 1924 Hollywood boycott was very much amongst societies and groups in Japan at the time, mostly far-right groups and societies um, who were petitioning to work against Hollywood and so on, and then instituted this boycott of movie theaters that were screening Hollywood films but it was actually not that successful movie goers audiences still went to see the Hollywood films and after a few days of shutting up shop, they still opened up the theaters again and showed the films. so there was a limited effect of that and I think it very much characterizes the time the 1920s when these sort of far-right groups and militaristic societies some that existed within the government and military at the time were really taking up action on the street through assassinations and and whatever and there's even the story of how they almost tried to assassinate Charlie Chaplin but that's another story but the the 37 Hollywood film band as I mentioned was more about the finance ministry that was involved that instituted this and it was actually a a ban on luxury goods of which Hollywood Films was considered as one. And it even affected European films, although they were very marginal at the time. So it was very much a, a financial issue in that sense. And then once the issue about moving the funds through a, a Japanese trading organization bank, the, the issue was was resolved. The 1939 film law, a small piece of legislation that sought to limit more Hollywood films. So that was more closer to a sort of action against Hollywood. But still, Hollywood films came through, and it wouldn't be till the war actually broke out between Japan and and the US that that Hollywood films actually became banned completely, and that was in a sort of total war environment. But interestingly, and it's been commented in in various works, uh, about how... Hollywood films still were were popular even during the Second World War or the Pacific War rather. So it was quite a lasting effect there of of power of the films that were made in Hollywood.
1: Okay, so throughout they always trickled through or trickled in the Hollywood films.
0: Yeah, even after the various pieces of legislation, they still trickled through in some ways. And I think a lot of the studios still held their um, distribution offices in Tokyo and other cities. But I think it was probably after the film law that they started retreating one by one from direct distribution. As as the environment came more hostile in terms of the film law and other actions, some of these groups and societies became more powerful who opposed uh very much anti-americanism and so on but yeah the they, amongst audiences uh, they were still quite popular and i think you still see today as uh, hollywood films still popular maybe domestic films still hold a strong showing in the market but hollywood films always seem to be popular <laughs> worldwide
1: that's definitely true just about the 39 bands was that finally then lifted just after the war
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah. obviously. And once the war came to an end, then you're talking about the U.S. occupation period. And then the U.S. occupation period was quite interesting because you saw this as well in, in Korea, which is an area that I'm looking at now is the U.S. occupation of Korea after the Second World War and how filmmaking and film distribution took on a new emphasis at that time. The Cold War began to emerge. And then they were looking at the US uh, military authorities who were trying to really do nation building exercises in these countries of using film as a medium to project thoughts, uh, not thoughts, but the sort of mood and feelings about anti-communism and and so on that that we're concerned about. So yeah, the filmmaking industries at that time then began to receive quite significant funds and support. And then with the Korean War, a lot of film equipment came over from Hollywood for local Korean filmmakers to make films about documentary films about the war but using Hollywood equipment because Hollywood filmmakers weren't coming over to do it so it's quite I mean that's a very different story but it's a fascinating one as well what happened there.
1: Yeah definitely so so you mentioned so this is what you're focusing on is this your current research?
0: Yeah this is another side research I'm working on so it's not my main research for my postdoctoral studies but this is another area that we're looking at it's, it's quite interesting so yeah it's just, as as well as Japan I look at Korean film industries so yeah it's it's part of this whole project I've been working on for the last 5 years or so in in supporting is, is it's been about the cultural industries and so on from Korea so yeah it's it's very interesting there's a lot of related papers with that as well
1: yeah, there's definitely, of course, this common thread. I mean, the cultural diplomacy and foreign policy and censorship and film are all really exciting topics. So, so I can yeah. see how, I mean, it must be difficult having so many, uh, oh, difficult and exciting to have so many ongoing projects. Can you tell us a bit about, well, I'm not sure if I should call it then your, your main line of work or your current research. Can you, can you tell us a little more about what you're doing now?
0: Yeah, I guess it's more like my primary research at the moment. um, Yeah, uh, I guess, I don't know. Um, My postdoctoral research at the moment is focused on British foreign policy in East Asia during the early 20th century. So from 1894 to 1931. It's a very broad time period, but it, it looks at the way in which Japan's rise at the time affected Britain's relations with Two countries, Korea and China. And of course, Korea losing its independence and becoming occupied by Japan. And then uh, China losing Manchuria. So it's looking at the story of Britain at the time, 1894, was very much one of the most powerful countries in the region at the time, and how it interacted, forged the, the alliance it forged with Japan, and then how it interacted specifically with these two countries, Korea, before it lost its independence, and then China, as it led up towards Manchuria becoming Manchukuo, the sort of puppet state country established in 1931. And it's a sort of a very long period of research, and it's looking at the way in which British policymakers and strategists looked at the region and tried to understand the way in which threat perception works, the identity politics that were involved. And how issues such as Russia or the fear of Russia brought mm. Japan and, and uh, Britain together more than it was concerned about Korea's future or China's um, political integrity. And I, I think a lot of the lessons that that could be extrapolated from looking at this period could be poignant for today when we look at more contemporary issues such as US-China relations, which goes back to what I was saying before about the limitation of looking at contemporary issues in a in a sort of broader research project is better to have something that, that you can see that has happened, such as you know with uh, Japan's rise. We've seen it. We know what happened. It's just a question of how you interpret the events. Whereas something maybe that's going on today is very difficult to know or predict or even forecast what will go on in the future. But it's also looking at other issues rather than just focusing on maybe say too much of a european centric view of using um realist or liberalist or whatever approaches to the topic and trying to look at some other way of and also the region's history rather than using european history to understand mm. asia and so on So it's, um sort of trying to look at always different and new approaches
1: yeah, this sounds like really crucial research. I mean, threat perception, you you, you mentioned Russia and of course the Chinese American relationship. Now, this is all not at all irrelevant today, so it sounds very important and interesting. Thank you so much. I'm really impressed and inspired by really again the wide scope of your research, and I really look forward to your continued work. And thank you so much for taking time to talk about your research today on the podcast.
0: Great. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to talk about my research and work I've done so far. And it helps also keep clear of what I've been doing as well. So Mm -hmm. it's good to sort of go through and revise and remember everything. done. With so much going on, it's often you forget about your past work. So it's good to sort of go back over it again and so on. Yeah, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk with you. It's been great. Thank you.
1: Thank you. This was Stephen Ranger, who is a research associate at the European Centre for International Political Economy and also a PhD candidate here at the Centre for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku. And to our listeners, thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration and studying Asia. Thanks again.
0: You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.